You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 Cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we have another great episode lined up for you. And this time, we are going to talk about something a little bit different. We're going to talk about Odyssey Now. And what Odyssey Now is, is it's an organization that is investigating, recreating, creating new things around the very original video game console. No, we're not talking about the Atari 2600. Contrary to popular belief, there were some consoles before the Atari 2600, and the very first console ever was the Magnavox Odyssey, which debuted in 1972. So what Odyssey now is doing is they're investigating the technology, they're investigating the gameplay that was available, they're developing their own games, their own peripherals, things that could have been done in the 70s with the console if it had continued on and if more development had been put into it. There's a lot of really neat stuff there, and as someone who's fascinated by history and the history of video games specifically, it was really cool to talk to the guys there working on Odyssey now, several of the students as well as their professor, and talk about the whole thing. So we're going to get into that in just a minute. But yeah, I did want to let everybody know that this, as an interview, is going to be something where when the interview ends, We're just going to go to the music and we're going to end the episode, so don't expect the normal outro or any of that kind of stuff. Of course, we still welcome your feedback. Send your feedback to everything at 42cast.com or our Facebook page or tweet to us or go on Instagram, go on our webpage. There's all those different ways that you can look in our show notes and you can see different ways of contacting us. Also, there's the ESO Network Patreon that's available where you can help any show on the network. That's uh, patreon.com slash ESO network. But yeah, I didn't want to talk too long before getting into the interview. We're just going to pause for a promo from another fine podcast and then go straight into it. You know what now is a great time for? A promo for Soul Forge Podcast. We talk about love. Loss. Tattoos. Sex. Dating. Stupid things we do for love. Pop culture. Mental health. We've had author interviews. Adventures. And shenanigans. What? Soulforge Podcast. Where? We're everywhere. Soulforge Podcast. Subscribe today. Forge your soul.
And we're back. And like I mentioned at the top of the show, we are talking about the Magnavox Odyssey today. And depending on your definitions and how you, you know, how you sort of consider what a video game is, we also have a milestone this year where it is 50 years since the either what you consider the first video game or the first home console video game, certainly. And so to talk with us about that, we have Dr. Zachary Horton and a couple of his students with us. So Dr. Horton, welcome to the 42Cast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. And could you just introduce yourself and just uh, let the audience know a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, there I run a lab called the Vibrant Media Lab. I started this lab as a media archaeology research center to uh, look at older forms of media, especially computational media, and a lot of what we do is look at early games and game systems. Um, and we gather faculty, grad students, undergrads, and often do kind of large-scale multi-year projects to recreate or explore these older forms. One of our flagship projects is called Odyssey Now, and it's devoted to looking at the the um, the Magnavox Odyssey and it's the and the the prototypes and things that led up to the Odyssey. All right, it's really interesting, and we're gonna get into that. And also, you've brought Levi Burner with you and Damian Hugh. Levi, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm a PhD student at the University of Maryland, uh, where I study not video games, but I study robotics and computer vision. Uh, but before that, I was at the University of Pittsburgh, where I met uh, Zach Horton and worked on the Odyssey for a couple of years, and I still work on it now. Okay. And Damien? Um, I'm an undergrad student, actually, uh, last year on my computer engineering in the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, I met Dr. Horton a year and a half ago, um, to restore one of the precursors to the Odyssey, the TVG2. Um, and we're also working on another project, the Tennis for Two restoration. Very cool. So yeah, I mean, just to sort of start off, because I know this is a question that sometimes uh, gets out into the weeds, but I think a lot of new information has come to light on this one. So I'll start off, Dr. Horton, with, with who invented video games? Yeah, definitely a loaded question. Um, something that 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 maybe too many people care care too much to uh, about. Um, it's in, in my view, and I study early video games uh, as a scholar. Um, you know, really, def it depends on your definition. Computer games have been around since the beginning of computers, and they've had graphical displays also since pretty much the the beginning of computers, and so. In some ways, I mean, that's the, the computer game. If you want to think of a video game as, as being a real-time game system, a real-time electronic game system, then I would say that Tennis for Two is, is a pretty strong candidate. That was uh, invented in 1958 and used, you know, an actual computer, an analog computer, but used an actual computer to create real-time graphical display, real-time input-output multiplayer gaming. So I think that's what most people think of intuitively as a video game. And I'd say that's the first. Some people, including Ralph Bayer, the inventor of the Odyssey, have made the 
claim that video, you know, a more narrow definition of video as a, a raster scan television signal as the output. To me, it doesn't really matter very much what your graphical output is, whether that's an oscilloscope, an XY plotter, or a ray of lights, or a um, or a TV monitor. But it is certainly significant. The first home video game that uses a television because that's a consumer device. So that is a very significant innovation. And that's, I mean, that was really Ralph Baer's vision, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. So I, I don't want to discount how novel that is of, of an invention. It really is remarkable to think of uh, the home television as being a platform for gaming. And that, that was Ralph. But I don't think intuitively it makes sense to call it the first video game because that's a little too narrow of a definition, I think. Yeah, I did spike that first question deliberately because it is a question that I love hearing people just like debate because there's so many ways to slice it as far as computer games versus home consoles versus, you know, a lot of people think Atari had the first video game because that's the first thing in their memory that, the, oh, the Atari 2600, that was the first, or if they're thinking about the arcade scene and okay, well, Atari released Pong and that's the first coin operated game that had wide distribution. It's not even true that it's the first coin operated video game, but that's I learned way too much listening to a video game history podcast, but like, <laughs> but in common knowledge, but yeah, I mean, you brought up the Odyssey and the Odyssey is something that again, like, I don't think a lot of people know about. I know before I read Stephen Kent's history of video games, I had never heard of the Odyssey before. And so who invented the Odyssey? Right. Well, that was really Ralph Baer. Um, I mean, he he's considered the inventor. Um, uh, he had a he had a team um, of of folks working with him at Sanders Associates, which was the uh, it was actually a defense company that he worked at in the '60s. So it was about the mid '60s, actually 19. Well, uh, Bayer says that he had the had kind of fleeting ideas even earlier in the 50s um, as he was working on televisions, thinking, well, maybe it would be possible to play a game on this. But the actual uh, spark of what would become the Odyssey, the first home console system, came in, in the mid-60s when Bayer says he was sitting at a bus stop and suddenly, you know, realized that a console could be created and plug right into the the antenna inputs of a standard home television and create input and output to to play a game and and that was kind of the flash. So he's the inventor. It was a long road though to get to the actual Odyssey, right? Which didn't come out till 1972, about six years after Ralph had this idea and started working on the project. So it's a it's actually a sort of long and somewhat tortured path, engineering and development path to get it to an actual uh, product. But already by 1966, he worked with folks in Sanders Associates, some of his colleagues there. He was the leader of a, he formed a little team. He was the head of the team and, and had a couple of other engineers, uh, most prominently William Roosh and uh, uh, Bill Harrison, who kind of together created, Roosh didn't come on at first. So, so the very first prototype was just a proof of concept that they called TV game, later thought of as TV game one. And it was really, it was a vacuum tube design. That's what Bayer was familiar with is, is vacuum tube electronics. And so he, he did a lot of the engineering in that first prototype and created basically something that just creates a spot on the television and you can move it around and you can change the color. I mean, it was really just a proof of concept. It wasn't quite a game yet. 
But then when he got William Roosh on board this and, um, and Bill Harrison, these guys were really brilliant engineers and they had all kinds of great ideas about how you could take this concept and turn it into actual games. So it was really when they joined that it kind of became what it, what it was. And TVG2, the second prototype, which was finished in 1967, was really what we could consider prototype of an actual console. It had two players, many, many different inputs, many, many different modes and types of games. Well, maybe six or seven actual games that you could play, but each one involved different electronics, different kinds of inputs, very, very different outputs, display. And a lot of that was, it was really Bayer's vision and leadership combined with a lot of um, William Rush's crazy ideas from an engineering standpoint. And then Bill Harrison did a lot of the sort of day-to-day engineering of that. So, you know, that was the team that came up with this. And then eventually it went through a number of more prototypes. It wasn't until prototype eight or nine that they had a, what they and their bosses at, at Sanders Associates thought was a kind of viable console. That TVG2, which Levi and I have studied the original console in the Smithsonian, and Damien's working on a project now to sort of rebuild the circuitry piece by piece for that and study it further, kind of un- try to understand better how it works. So they can also say more about this. But that TVG2 is what I consider to be the kind of brilliant invention that eventually led to the Odyssey. Now, a lot of stuff got stripped out and other stuff got added. That TVG2 was insanely expensive. It was kind of a blue sky project where they got the whatever components they wanted to create whatever they could think up as gameplay, you know, and they had a fox chase game where there's a bunch of hounds chasing one fox and, you know, these multiple, you know, and the kind of there was randomness and the hounds are jumping around and you, as one player, hard to control, the other player is trying to control fox and escape them. They had a firefighting game where you would actually pump a physical pump, like an old fashioned, you know, uh, early 19th century, you know, water pump and try to douse a flame before the flame took over. There was a bucket filling game where it was a kind of a tug of war where two players were pumping against each other. So there were, there were all kinds of basically chase and, you know, kind of dexterity games that were really unique. And they had color and various like I said, randomization and timing circuits that would give you a certain amount of time to do something before you lose, and the scre- whole screen could change colors. These are all features that were later stripped out of later prototypes because they basically because they cost too much. The components were really expensive, and actually, as we've studied this and tried to um, rebuild these circuits, we had to get a lot of these vintage components. And they're quite rare and expensive today, but they were even even expensive at the time. And so, as soon as they created that proto- prototype, it really blew. They had a gun game already in that prototype, a light gun, and blew people away within the company. Um, and their bosses gave them a budget after that and said, OK, keep going. But the one stipulation is that you have to cut costs by 75% uh, on this thing. You can't be using these expensive components. You've got to find a way to use cheap components to do something similar. And, uh, and then from then on, they, they stripped out all that stuff and started to rebuild sort of from scratch. And Bill Harrison was the engineer who really was the one who came up with ways to, instead of using expensive summing amps, to you know build from from the simplest possible, like cut down to the bare essentials. How could you use the most bare 
simple circuitry and those basic components possible to build up very complex logic. And so the, the you know, and then they, they basically went back to square one, started doing that, and then built up as many things as they could think of after that. And they had lost a lot from that TVG2, but they also gained stuff because they figured out how to do a ball, an automatically moving ball that could be bounced back and forth. So it sort of compensated for all the complex circuitry losses. They nonetheless got a very unique and what ended up being very, very influential gameplay mechanic, circuitry mechanic. Levi could probably say something about how that ball works, why that's such an innovation. Before that, everything had to be player controlled except for randomly moving parts. Um, and this ball was something that was not randomly moving and not player fully player controlled. It was something that had automatic control and yet could use very, very simple circuitry since they had stripped out all the complex stuff. Yeah, I think it's important to note here that this is well before Pong had existed as a coin-operated game. Because even though the Odyssey came out the same year as the Pong arcade game, the concept was well before then. This is years before the, the release of the Odyssey that they're coming up with the Pong concept on a television screen. Well, I can say more about Pong. I mean, that's really interesting. For one thing, Tennis for Two, which we mentioned earlier, does have a moving ball. And so did earlier games in the 50s as well. There was a pool game that had moving pool balls, basically, on the screen. Um, and it, it wasn't exactly real time. You had to choose choose an angle of attack and, you know, you choose where your cue stick is placed. And then it, kind of the simulation would run on the computer. This was a digital computer at the University of Michigan. And, you know, that simulation would run and the balls would move. And it, so it was a really beautiful and complex simulation, but you couldn't interact with them in real time, even though they would move. So then it was Tennis for Two that was the one that tackled this. However, both of those projects, the uh, Michigan pool game, used a, you know an insanely expensive Department of Defense military digital computer. And Tennis for Two used an off-the-shelf but still quite expensive analog computer, um, a Donner analog computer that was being used in, at, the, at the lab where it was built. So these are these are big computers that essentially are getting you know extra circuitries being plugged into in order to use. Now the, what was unique and and the reason that that where what the project that Bayer was working on um, you know was trying to use a, a consumer TV. This is orders of magnitude <laughs> cheaper and simpler in terms of the electronics. And so their very first prototypes, those first two prototypes, they didn't have anything that could move without. Um, like I said, random generation, random, random oscillation, basically. They use neon bulbs to create a sort of random positioning of things or direct player control, you know, using potentiometers. So the idea that even though others had certainly created moving graphics, they had high-end hardware to do it on. And when they had to go to low-end hardware, they didn't think that was possible at first. But then they had this big breakthrough on the TVG Games project at Sanders. Um, that, and that's really you know, what made it the eventual console viable is this ball ended up being not for all the games, but the core of many games, including table tennis, which was the game that actually Pong was based on later, right? And so it was... Um, Nolan Bushnell conveniently forgot that fact. For many years. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It was a <laughs> it was a pre pre launch event for the Odyssey in 1972, early in the year when they basically had these big promotional events, and it wasn't on sale yet. 
they would do a big event in LA and and elsewhere where they would you know advertise it to distributors and people who might be interested in selling the Odyssey and stocking it. They would they um, you know had a big event where people could come and demonstrate it. We could play games on a television, you know, um, very exciting. And Nolan Bushnell, who had already created an arcade game, Computer Space, the year before, so he was already working in arcade in video games and arcade games, but. When he played table tennis at that or saw it played at that demo event, he immediately went back to uh, Al Alcorn, his chief engineer, and, and, and said, this game is amazing. I want us to create a version of this. And he described all, how the game worked, and Al Alcorn created Pong, and eventually Pong, you know, in the, in the popular imagination, eclipsed the Odyssey, even though it directly ripped off that game. And of course, the Odyssey had 28 games eventually by 1973 um, and Pong is only one. So, and Pong is again, used a far more expensive digital circuitry. So in, in many ways, the Odyssey from an engineering standpoint, certainly the Odyssey is, is, is far more impressive. Um, but also it's a, it was, it was a little disingenuous that Atari didn't credit <laughs> the Odyssey that they had directly ripped this game off of. Very interesting. Yeah, no, I know that story because the only reason that they were ever able to prove it is that Ralph Bear had saved the guest list from all those different showings and Nolan Bushnell's name is there in a signature. I've seen a picture of it, you know, so it's like, yeah, exactly. you were there. <laughs> Caught red-handed with a signature. <laughs> right. But yeah, Levi, I mean, we were just talking though about the, the circuitry and again, like our audience is not necessarily highly technical, but I think because video games are now so ubiquitous to life in general, everybody was seen or interacted with video games and it's kind of interesting to think back to this is the beginning of a home product mm -hmm. video game and so how would you describe because right now we're talking we're talking about the stripped down version now we're talking about the black box right like what ralph bear coined the the black box is, is that correct the brown box brown box yeah the brown box and so what can you tell us about the brown box how it operated and just why it's so innovative so the the brown box I mean, Zach, if you can correct me, the brown box was the unit just before the Odyssey, if I remember correctly. Yeah, the final yeah, prototype. The final prototype. So it had the bouncing ball and that sort of thing. Yeah, so the, the brown box was really interesting because they were they were very close to releasing a product and they they had most of the features they wanted. They had a, they had the ability to bounce the ball. They had the ability to set different games in a, in a user-friendly manner. And I say user-friendly, but they hadn't quite gotten to the card system yet where you'd stick in a card to play a game. Instead, they had a set of switches that you would actually essentially program the unit with. Uh, if you wanted to play game eight, you would switch these switches in a certain pattern and it would it would do what you wanted. Um, but they the big thing here is they had the bouncing ball at this point. And the bouncing ball was difficult because you'd need to determine contact. You need to determine when the ball makes contact with the paddle so that you can go, you know, switch your direction from going right to left or, or from left to right. And technically this is, I mean, if you're a theoretician, this is a very difficult problem mathematically. And that's partially why the expensive computer was important before, but they came up with a very clever trick and that's why this was worked. And this is why they were able to do it very cheaply. The trick was that when the ball is put on the screen and has a circuit that actually says, hi, I want the screen pixels to go white right now as that scan beam is going across a rasterized TV, they would the circuit would say at this time right now, draw a white pixel so that it becomes a ball as I do that over multiple scans. 
And that same circuit was repeated for the wall that the player could move around. So you have one circuit that's saying, draw a ball right now at this time. And you have another that's saying, draw the wall at this time. And if those times are the same, those signals are present at the same time, you'd essentially go through an AND gate and say, the ball and the wall are at contact right now because they're trying to make the screen white. They're trying to make the scan beam make the screen white at the same time. And at that point, uh, that would send a signal to trigger a flip-flop, which would make the ball go the other direction. And that's what that's what made the ball bouncing so cool is because it, it uses this trick. It literally follows the scan beam and uses the scan beam's timing to detect coincidence and make the direction change. In, in modern video games, they, they don't do it this way anymore. This is They do it a different way that's more complicated. Yeah, and what were the sort of limitations of the brown box's video capabilities? Yeah, so the, the brown box, it, I believe it did not have color, uh, if I remember correctly. So we were back to the, the prototype, or the we were getting close to the final version. They had removed the color. So it was black and white, I'll say it could it could do a little it could do background color so it could change ah. the color of the background, not the same level of color sophistication that the earlier TVG two had had, where it could change the color the the um the player spots and it could change the color of the player spots based on certain events and things like that. So it wasn't they they had stripped out that circuitry, but they added in the ability to do that the the color background and some basic like some basic non-interactive, but still some color. Okay. And as far as like objects that could be on the screen, what were the limitations on its capabilities? So the, the brown box could have one wall that was like fixed and then two player paddles. So you could have a paddle on the left and a paddle on the right. Those spots, I mean, they weren't restricted to the left and the right. You actually, depending on the game, you could move one spot, all one player spot all the way to the right side and the other one all the way to the left side, just depended on what game you were playing and what you were allowed to do, because the system wouldn't actually stop you from moving your spot to some part of the screen that you weren't allowed to be in. And then it, it had the ball that could bounce back and forth. And if I'm not mistaken, that's everything. Zach can correct me. Yeah, that's right. It basically had this the similar stuff to the to the final Odyssey. It did also have pump controllers built in, so it could still play those games that they had originally invented back in the TVG2 prototype. Um, it couldn't play all of them because it, some of the circuitry, circuitry was missing, but it could play pump games. They developed new pump games, basically, that it could play. Um, so it could do pump games. It could do light rifle games. And indeed, it had the four basic different on-screen elements that the later Odyssey did. And it had some bits of color capability. So, you know, some of that stuff got lost when they developed, when they released. And it also had a golf ball controller, but that's a, you know, peripheral. So it was a more complete system in some ways in the Odyssey, but it was missing tons of stuff that the Odyssey had, like the, like Levi mentioned, the the programmable the cards, the game cards, which were a, a really brilliant move. And that was the um, the Magnavox engineering team that worked that out. They're, they they tried they just wanted to find a way to make this device way more user friendly. Um, and that's uh, that's why I think they got rid of the golf ball controller, which was difficult to calibrate um, and use. And they added the card system, which is really brilliant. It's basically programming the device, um, just like all those switches, bank of switches on the brown box could program the device. But it's doing it all in a way that doesn't that requires only one action, choosing a card of a certain number and and plugging it in. All the 
everything's then pre-programmed without the user having to do any programming switching, right? So um, that was a major innovation, as well as, of course, there's the I, totally iconic design. MoMA in New York has the Odyssey console as part of one of its collections, modern design, innovation in modern design. And it's really awesome. I mean, it's it's a it's a totally iconic '60s space age design for a console. It's maybe the maybe you know be my vote for the for the coolest looking console design there is physically. And you know, and then they they made it you know so with the top slot, so you drop a card card down in the you know in the front. It it just it made it very cool. Yeah, for people who are familiar with cartridge-based systems, it's a very similar idea. It's just instead, it's a card that looks like a circuit, you know, like if you ever see a printed circuit, except there's no components on it. It's just a card with the connections on it that once you plug it in, it it makes those connections. So yeah, it's kind of ahead of its time because they went away from that for a while in video games before returning to the idea of, of dropping in something like that. Absolutely. So yeah, the, the the design, and then then the other interesting thing is, you know, again, like you see how like Atari went the exact opposite way of trying to present this sort of like wood grain, very much looked like a piece of current furniture instead of the cool space age design. So I'm like, I'm glad you brought that up because that wasn't something I was going to ask about. But you're right, like the design of the Odyssey is very neat. I'll include pictures in the show notes and some things because uh, yeah, I mean it's a very cool thing. So the practical experience of playing now. Levi and Damien, I know you've been working on circuitry and whatnot. Have you actually played the Odyssey? Of course, yeah. Some of the games. I haven't played all of them. Well, sure. I'm just saying, have you played it at all? So yeah, Damien, have you had a chance to play the released version, the Magnavox Odyssey or a reproduction of it? We have an Odyssey right on the table where we work on the TVG2, and uh, we have a cartridge, the tennis cartridge loaded in there. And the fact is it's playing onto a TV screen, a CRT TV screen. I mean, even though it's very low resolution, it still looks as if it's something modern. It's none of that digitalized aliasing on there. The CRT takes care of that. So it's overall very interesting gaming experience. Yeah. So there is one thing that we haven't talked about yet that the Odyssey has. And so we described how the video capabilities of the device are very limited. So how did they add graphical variation to these games? Yes, the overlay system. So this is actually... I think really, really brilliant. It, it wasn't the first time that someone had used an overlay over a TV. There was a television program in the 50s where you would actually, for kids, and you would actually take an over, it would, they'd send you an overlay kit. You'd put this overlay on the television and then you'd use grease pencil type or crayons, certain type of crayons. I think they were kind of grease pencil crayons. On the TV program, they would say, okay, we're going to draw, you know, an elephant, and now we're going to make the elephant, and basically different actions and things would happen. So it was kind of a game, kind of a art program for kids, and people would draw on their TV. And I think this is probably where they got the idea for this, the uh, the Magnavox, or not the Magnavox team, actually, Ralph Baer had this idea early on. And when you're saying overlay, though, could you define that like a little bit better so people understand? So you don't see it, I don't think like it's easy, like... Y- yes, you know absolutely. what we're talking about, right? Yeah. Yes. So it's a very, what it is, is it's a very thin sheet of plastic, acetate. So it's this ultra thin piece of plastic that is cut out in the shape of a television screen. And so at that time in the in the early 70s, that meant that it had a kind of rounded corners, round shape a bit for the television. And that's the shape of the overlay. But basically it's that ultra thin plastic that has been offset printed. 
so that it has various layers of inks on it. And some of those inks, uh, so they have different characteristics, right? So they developed an opaque layer that they could print on there that would completely obscure anything that's happening on the screen behind that opaque layer. They had a clear layer for gun game when one of the player spots would be in a place that they wanted to be shootable by the gun. The normal layer would be a frosted layer. So what it would do is it would both reflect light. And I'm describing this in detail because these are more sophisticated than you might think. It's not just a like a, some graphics that are thrown up on the screen. It's actually a, a number of optical effects that they were creating on these overlays. Now, I should say that the early versions, the prototype versions that Bayer's team created at Sanders were simpler. They were hand-drawn and they were on clear sheets and then people would use Sharpies or you know, the equivalent to, to draw sh simple shapes and things like targets for the gun game or goals for the chase games, that kind of, or mazes. They had, they had checker games, they had board game, you know, boards that they were drawing on there, all kinds of stuff. So those were the prototypes, but, but basically Bear handed all this over to the Magnavox team and the Magnavox team hired a brilliant designer named Ron Bradford. And Ron Bradford basically said, oh, we can do so much with this. And so he took the basic concepts that the, that the prototype games from Ralph Baer, some of them he just ported right over, created nice looking overlays, and they, they were the same as the original Bear games. Other ones they added to, they created elaborate graphics. They'd create a hockey game where the actual position of the hockey nets and the boundaries on the screen made a big difference to the rules, right? Actually really affected gameplay. And then they went really far out and R Ron Bradford created this game Invasion, which is one of the most amazing, I think it's one of the best video games ever. And it's definitely an, an amazing, um, one of the top couple games for the Odyssey. And the overlay on that is a castle. It's this kind of fantasy, medieval fantasy castle and it has various walls and towers and doorways and a courtyard. And all of that comes into play in the game, you know, all those features. And then there are other games, well, there's a game called Haunted House, where the overlay just makes it. Again, this is another Ron Bradford innovation. In the Haunted House game, almost the entire overlay is opaque. It has that black layer. And so only specific little objects and windows in this big haunted mansion allow light through. And they have different colors. And so what happens is as you move the player spots around the screen, you don't really see the squares, rectangles, you know, that kind of stuff. What you see instead is objects lighting up. And it's really spectacular because unlike a, a digital, if you did this digitally on a screen, you know, the whole screen would be lit up, right? And you would have certain things that would be highlighted, but it wouldn't look as impressive. What happens here is because most of the screen, screen is black, which is to say that all the light from the background of the screen is blocked. You get these objects that glow really intensely and, and amazingly into the room, especially if you play with the lights very low or off. So the overlay here is fundamental to the way that the game works and it's spectacular. People remember when they talk online on forums and whatnot, that's the game that people most remember if they've never seen an, if they played the Odyssey back in the, or in the 70s and early 70s and haven't played it since, that's the first game they remember is Haunted House. And it's because the optical effect of moving through this haunted house and, and suddenly lighting up a window or lighting up a skeleton or a skull or a spider or the glowing eyes of a cat, this is so viscerally fascinating. And, you know, we've seen the same when we've, when we've exhibited and had people play the Odyssey publicly or my students play the Odyssey in classes or in the lab. 
this haunted house game blows people away even today. I mean, it's maybe even especially today because digital screens can't do the same kind of optical effect. Basically, these overlays started as maybe a, a kind of way to just a handicap for the early prototypes, right? So that you could get stuff on the screen that was beyond the capabilities of the system, targets and goals and things like that. But by the time it got to Ron Bradford and the Odyssey team for the final product, they started taking the overlays in incredibly creative directions, and it became a, a huge asset. And of course, there's probably more that you'd like to talk about in terms of other components. It wasn't just overlays. They had really creative uses of combining cards and board, game boards and things as well. But I would say the heart of the system was the interaction between these on-screen real-time graphical elements and these elaborate overlays. That The combination of those two effects is what created what's so unique about the, the Odyssey gameplay. Yeah, thanks for that. Because yeah, like that's the thing. It's like sometimes I even can't remember. Like, oh yeah, this is something that has to be explained, you know, <laughs> like to people because it's such a different thing from what you think of as a video game. But getting back to Damien and Levi, and, and let's start with you, Damien. How do you find the experience of playing the Odyssey, both just from the standpoint of the fact that it is using these other elements, whether it's the overlays or actual like physical game pieces but also like the play control of the controller itself you know like how do you find playing with it now in the context of 2022 um yeah so being born in the new millennium after the year 2000 many of us is not at all in, um familiar with these older computers and console systems um the kind of controller we are familiar to is mostly like ps4 or xbox controllers where they are made to fit your hand so you can have both thumb on, on a joystick of some kind. But in the case of the Odyssey, it's a box with a button on it and a potentiometer on the side. So you move the potentiometer to move. In my understanding, or in, uh, from how, how I feel when I'm playing that, um, it's more of a like an alien technology, almost in a way. <laughs> that uh, I guess engineering back then has a completely different mindset. Engineers were allowed to do what engineers want to do, and not restricted by many of the um, the product has to serve for a everyday consumer as what we're thinking we're doing right now. Yeah, ergonomic probably wouldn't be a term that you would apply to the Odyssey controller. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's funny that Damien mentions a kind of alienness because one of the jokes I have with my students is that there are games for, for the Odyssey that are essentially designed for non-human anatomy, like for some kind of alien species that has you know enough hands to, to control everything. And in particular, and, and Levi and I have written about this in a, in a not yet published article, the game Volleyball is a great example where it's incredibly complex. People have a really hard time playing this today. Even the best of gamers today, it takes incredible dexterity to play this game. But it also, it's partly because it uses three knobs and a button. And we just don't have enough hands to control all those things at once. And yet the game requires you almost simultaneously to control everything. I don't know another example of a game, of a video game like this, where it's almost physically impossible to control it because you have to control so many things simultaneously. But in the game, you hit a ball back and forth over a net. So there's a net drawn on the screen uh, electronically, 
And if the ball hits the net, um, and Levi was describing this earlier, like uh, it's the it's the same thing as the wall, but but a, a, instead of a full height across the screen, it just there's a the circuit that that causes it to be short at the bottom of the small small wall at the bottom of the screen, like a tennis net. And if the ball hits the net, it wipes out the ball. Ball disappears. And so you have to hit the ball back and forth across the screen. And you have to hit it down so that you're trying to get it through the bottom of the screen. You know, like in an actual game of volleyball, it has to hit inside the court, the ground before the other team hits it, right? But there's no computational gravity in the game. You have to do the, the work of gravity. And so both players, basically, when you, you have to rush out there and hit the ball that your players hit to your side of the screen. But once you hit it, and at the moment you hit it, you have to send it flying toward them over the net. So you have to actually use one, you know, you're using two knobs to move around, basically, move your player to try to intercept the ball. But as soon as the moment you touch it, the ball goes bouncing off toward them. And you have to use a third knob to actually control the apogee of the of the ball. So you have to send it up and over the net. If you don't, it'll hit the net and you're, you know, you've lost a point. So you have to hit, send it up and over the net, but then you also have to bring it back down again before it exits the screen, you know, in order to try to score against your opponent. And then meanwhile, your opponent is like flying out there trying to intercept that ball at the same time, trying to direct the ball back. Really good players, when players get really good at this, they can do it. Um, and it's really impressive to see. I mean, it's it's got to be one of the most difficult and challenging and exciting of all video games just because it's so hard. But new players just that ball hit, they just can't even get a volley going because it's so difficult. So anyway, sorry, I wanted to jump in there because the joke is that, that this game is perfect for an alien race that has at least three arms. Yeah. So, I mean, Levi, they did kind of give a wrong impression when I compared the Odyssey to Pong because of the fact that Pong is a very much simpler game, right? Like it has, it has some features the, the Odyssey doesn't have because it has sound effects. It has a scoreboard that's on the screen, but that's just one paddle controller right it's just one potentiometer you turn it one way or the other and the paddle goes up and down on the screen but to dr horton's point there are three knobs on the odyssey controller plus a button Mm -hmm. so could you explain what all those things do but also and then also talk about your own experience like playing the game and how you you know sort of feel about you know playing the odyssey system sure so the the controller like you said it has three and zach said it has three knobs and a button the button is the simplest one it resets the game or it can be thought of as serve. So if you lost the point and the ball is off the screen now because you missed it, or maybe you hit the net and it, it disappeared because it, it hit the net, you could hit the serve button on your controller to serve the ball from your side to the other player. So that's what that does. And in most games, it has a similar function, something like reset. And then there's the two other knobs. Um, there's a knob on the left and a knob on the right of the controller. And these are the X, Y controls for your player spot. So your player's spot is some sort of rectangular shape, and you can change its XY coordinate to move it pretty much anywhere on the screen in any game. But there's a third knob, and the third knob is it's on the left-hand side, and it's on one of the knobs that you use to control it. So you, it's almost like a multi-tiered cake. The outer knob, the lower level of the cake, is for controlling the player position. And the third knob is this, they call it the English, but really what it does is it controls the ball's height. So in a game like volleyball, where you need to arc the ball back over the net to get to the other player, your hand has to switch from the XY controls over a few centimeters to grab the other knob and twist it. And because they're literally stacked on each other, it makes it very, very difficult to do both at once. 
it's almost impossible, honestly. I've spent some time trying to do it. <laughs> but that that gets into the other the other side of of playing Odyssey is that well, in video games today, maybe I could relate it to that is there's a lot of emphasis on finding glitches sometimes and maybe even so some you know there's speed runs in video games with glitches without glitches whatever and honestly you enforce all the rules so if you want if there's supposed to be gravity then you're going to enforce that the game will make the ball bounce but a lot of the more advanced things like scoring or taking turns and who gets to serve that's all on you guys on you the player to be part of the program and part of that game um, so that's the other thing about playing Odyssey that's really unique is you're in this weird in between between a board game and between what we would call a modern video game that a lot of them second talk about it better. But there's there's some real richness in the way that the games can be designed because the human is actually part of the game as well as part of the game mechanics. Right. And in fact, talking about the human equation, there's also another big difference between modern gaming and the Odyssey, because how many people do you need to play the Odyssey? Right. I mean, for most games, you need, I think all of them, you need two, at least two. Uh, Zach has some where you need multiple. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the Odyssey, uh, because there's no CPU, right? And so, uh, you know, there's nothing to control a second player, uh, you know, thing. So it's it's a game that requires the interaction of multiple people to be able to play any of the games on the system, which is which is also something that think about now, because everything has a computer controlled environment or other characters yeah there is actually one game that you can play uh alone because the one computer controlled if you will and again it's not a processor but it's a basically a simple analog computer the one computer controlled element is the ball right and so Mm. there's one game that exploits that called shooting gallery and it, it basically makes the ball the target and and exploits the fact that there's circuitry to move the ball autonomously and it moves back and forth between rows of objects like at a carnival and you have to try to shoot as the ball moves through them so that that's actually a clever way to use what circuitry it has in order to do a one player game but you know it's interesting that that that's a kind of novelty and in looking through the notes of all the people who the notebooks of all the people who created these games and these the system no one ever thought of this as a problem or a limit or even really a limitation. The idea that TV games, that playing games on your television would be a one-player activity didn't really enter into anyone's imagination. Everybody just assumed that this was a social activity, that you would sit with multiple people or at least one other person in front of your television and you'd be playing with them. So it was basically conceived from the beginning as a social activity. And I think one of the reasons is that from the beginning, at least for the Odyssey team, it was conceived. This was conceived of as on a continuum with family gaming, and family gaming was tabletop gaming at that time, right? There, there, there that was the main category of gaming. And I mean, even in the prototypes, Ralph Bayer, for instance, created all the modified board games to be played on the TV. But I think the it was uh, Ron Bradford and the and the Odyssey team that really wanted to push this further, the integration of tabletop gaming with screen gaming, and that's why it's so in, that's really why it's so innovative. It is the first vi- home video game console, but that's just being first. But it's more than that, right? It's way more than that in that it's actually something really unique that we don't have today. It, so it's not just the beginning of a, a sort of a progression or evolution of home video games it is that but it's also partly an evolutionary line that went extinct 
And that's really fascinating because we can ask why. Um, and But one factor related to what you're t asking is that video games have become a more solitary activity. Most people play most video games solo, right? There, Obviously, Nintendo is pushed into multiplayer gaming more and tries to get more people in the same space, right? And has been rewarded in the market for doing that because people like that. But that's not really what most gaming is. Most gaming is a solo activity. And that start, began already with the Atari and the the second generation of consoles that followed the Odyssey, most of those games by default were single player. So the idea that games, that video games would be a social activity, right, with multiple people in the same space playing with each other is fundamental to how the Odyssey is designed and how its games are designed. So that's an interesting sort of cultural shift that began later after the Odyssey, this move toward the solo game. Anyway, I just want to emphasize there are technological limitations because you can't do sophisticated AIs. You can't do much more than the, the ball movement. However, they could have done more, right? I mean, they could have added more circuitry if that was a priority. There, there are other things they could have done to create more single-player possibilities for the Odyssey, and they just didn't even, that wasn't of interest to them. That never entered into their idea of what the Odyssey should be. It was always thought of as being a social, often family. And in the advertisements, the advertising copy, it's always a family depicted. It's not a single player or even two players. It's always was seen by them as a platform for social activity within the home. Yeah, in fact, I actually talked to Don Emery at one point uh, when I was doing my own casual poking around into the Odyssey and the background with it. And he had mentioned that before he was let go from the company, that the thing that the engineers were working on was a four-player version of the Odyssey. Now, obviously, that never came to fruition, but they were looking at expanding the number of players rather than like limiting to a sort of single player mode. Yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. They, they really doubled down on that. And even in the existing Odyssey games, for people who don't know much about the Odyssey, you might be surprised to know that there are four player games and there aren't games where each player has a controller because there are only two controllers physically. But there are games like Invasion that I mentioned before. And Interplanetary Voyage, another really sophisticated game and actually a game that Don Emery created. He was very proud of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and should be because it's an amazing game. And these are games that essentially by 1973, which is just one year after the release of the Odyssey. But at that point, I think the team was really clicking on all levels. And they really re they realized some of the games were very simple and, and not as interesting that were released with the as bundled with the Odyssey. It came with 12 games, one of which was Haunted House, which, like I said, blew people away, and another of which was Ping Pong, which also blew people away just from the basic gameplay standpoint. It's really fun, still is fun today. But some of the most unique and innovative games came basically the year after that as the team sort of refined and saw what the platform was capable of doing and spent you know maybe more effort trying to exploit, especially... What was most unique about the entire Odyssey, which was the, its ability to combine board gaming, card gaming, and television gaming. And games like Invasion perfectly mesh these things together. In Invasion, you have a game board where you have up to four players can play. It's two to four. And it's a full kind of medieval kingdom. And it's a big map of this kingdom and all the different regions and areas and rivers and lakes and, and oceans and whatnot that are part of it. It's kind of like Game of Thrones of the early 70s. And you have all these armies, all these pieces and all these cards, and you're playing a strategic game like, like Risk, but more it's more sophisticated than Risk, more complex game than Risk. But it's kind of like that in that you're playing a big strategic game, long, the long strategic game to try to 
ally maybe with people against other people, like change your alliances. You're trying to do diplomacy and strategy to defeat your opponent's armies, right? As if like a sophisticated board game. However, every time you have a battle, every time a battle's triggered, right, by the strategic movement of armies, you play it out on the on the television. And you, you know, you put that overlay on, it uses multiple different game cards. Um, you know, so depending on the type of battle and the strategies employed by the players, you, know, you choose which game card goes in and what you have to do. Right. Some are sneak attacks at night. You're trying to like breach a castle walls. Other times it's a it's a big ba- pitched battle in an open field. Other times it's a siege. But depending on what strategically is happening, you have to play that scenario out on screen in real time, battling each other. And so your dexterity and ability to control the Odyssey, the electronic elements of the Odyssey will determine who's better at fighting battles. But your strategy, your ability to think far ahead and do diplomacy and figure out what to do at a larger strategic level will determine who has the strategic advantage. So the game, I mean, there's, I, there's no other game that does this so perfectly where it's a huge range of skills that come into play to determine the winner, right? Some people might be really great strategically, but really bad at fighting battles. And other people might be really good at battles, but have poor strategy or poor diplomacy. Right. And so you end up with, and then the alliances can balance that out. And you can say, oh, I want to ally with so and so because they're really good at the battles, but I'm really good at the, at the overall strategy. You know, it's incredibly complex, the sorts of games that can, can result from that. And, you know, to play the game, it's, you know, an hour and a half, two hour long game to play out one game, but incredibly satisfying because you get all of the excitement of a tabletop game and all of the kind of action of a video game, but combined in this really beautiful way. So speaking with all these innovations and how this was not like anything anyone had seen at the time, what ended the original Magnavox Odyssey? Why didn't it continue? Well, we can only speculate, but I think there are a number of reasons. One is the complexity of the platform. The games were really complicated, uh, with the exception of a couple like Ping Pong, which got ripped off as Pong and became a huge hit because it's so simple. And, And it's funny because even though ping pong is maybe the simplest game on the Odyssey, it's, as you mentioned before, it's still more complex than Pong, the arcade game. Even though it lacks some of the, the sound effects and scoring of the arcade game, the controls are more complex, and what you can do is more complex than Pong, right? Where the computer does most things, all you really do is move one paddle. So it's funny, that, but that, what that shows us is that consumers, players, responded actually better to simplicity, than complexity. And so in, in some ways, the Odyssey's sophistication worked against it. People wanted something simpler. They liked the idea of playing games on a screen, on a television screen. That was super popular. But I guess they weren't willing to invest as much time and energy into it. There's a game on the Odyssey football that famously is so complex that most people can't even figure out how to play it. As part of the Odyssey Now project at the University of Pittsburgh, we've collected many, many Odyssey consoles and restored them. So I have something of a decent sample size. And I can tell you that probably 75% of these old consoles that we have got in, there's some punch board elements for the game football. You can't play it if you don't punch out this little football and a couple of other things. And 75% of the time when we do have the components, that football is not punched out. So what that tells us is that most people did not play, could not figure out how to play. It takes up like six dense pages in an enormous rule book 
to just explain how to play the game, it uses multiple different cards. It uses not only an overlay, it uses tables. It uses trackers of game board. You have to consult wind tables to figure out the wind speed, to know kind of how far you're going to throw the ball. You've got a decks of incredibly complicated cards to figure out how to play your, you know, and then you've got to play your different, um, depending on what plays you and, and the defense have selected. You've got to then play it out with a, you know, complex set of rules on the screen. It's so complicated. There's dice to roll to figure out when, if the wind's going to shift. I mean, it's so complicated that people just can't figure it out. I mean, not all the games are like that. There are a lot of games in between, right? Where you invest maybe 45 minutes to learn a game and then play it. But that's nothing like video games that followed it and video games of today, right? Where you're, you can learn, you can kind of pick up the game and figure it out in maybe five minutes, you can figure out the basics of the video game. Now, board games are still complex, but, that's, but they're a different thing, right? Now they're a different thing. Uh, here they were combined. But video games have become simple. And the Atari, which was a court, the Atari 2600, which was a huge hit in the home video game market after this, was famously simple. Like you have a joystick that controls got, instead of three different knobs and a button, it's down to one stick and a button. And all you do is jam that thing in the direction you want to go and hit the button, and you can figure out most games in 30 seconds, right? So I think that, and then and that and Pong both show us that it was the Odyssey's complexity and the le level of investment that it required from players in terms of time and focus that I think created openings for competitors that basically took what the Odyssey was doing and just made it a lot simpler, stripped it all down to something way, way simpler and, e and easier way less sophisticated, way less interesting in my mind in terms of the games, but simplicity won out, you know? And we've seen that ever since. Video games have had more and more complex graphics, but not necessarily that much more complex gameplay because it's always been the case that simpler, game, simpler controls, simpler gameplay, the simpler you make it, the more popular it is, right? And so they found a different way to innovate, which is to push graphical and sound capabilities. In other words, presentation, while simplifying play. And the Odyssey had simpler presentation, but way more complex play. And that just turned out to be an equation that, that there wasn't as much of a mass market appeal for. I think there would be today, there would be a dedicated audience to something like that. But at the time, in a new product category, they had to win people over to this entirely new type of electronic system, new type of gameplay. And at that time, that battle to win people over to something brand new, they didn't even invented the term video game yet. That battle was a difficult one, given the, the amount of the level of complexity and commitment that it required. Yeah, no. And also, of course, the cost of components was falling and they could do chips now rather than, you know, having all these discrete components that the Odyssey was full of. And so suddenly it became a lot cheaper to do those elements, you know, the things that make it look flashy or have sound effects and things like that and so because i i think i think i looked one time the odyssey when it was first released in today's dollars is like 750 dollars. so that's a yeah. pretty huge investment for somebody to make on a on a brand new thing they've never seen before absolutely yeah it was a hundred dollars which yeah comes out to over 600 dollars today yeah so yeah i guess pro probably yeah probably now over 700 <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was expensive. Yeah, it was expensive for people. Comp you know, compare that to Pong, where it costs a quarter to play. The game system costs, you know, $7,000 uh, for, for an establishment to buy one. But for a player, it was only 25 cents. And that's a lot easier to stomach. You can just go in and give it a try. 
Whereas um, that's a big commitment to spend, you know, $700 equivalent on something. You've got to kind of really believe that, that it's going to be something that you're going to like. And how are you, how do you even know that when you've never heard of this thing before? Now that said, it was successful. I mean, it, it didn't lose money or anything like that. Um, um, but they only sold maybe 250,000 of these consoles. And so that's a financial success, but it's not a big hit. Whereas something like Pong and the later Atari stuff, those were much bigger hits. Yeah. So you've mentioned Odyssey Now several times now. And so could you tell us a little bit more about what Odyssey Now is exactly? Sure. So Odyssey Now is basically a research program or project that I created in my lab, the Vibrant Media Lab at Pitt. It has a lot of different facets to it. It's been going on for quite a few years now. And uh, Levi was an early uh, participant in this project. And as he said, he's gone on to other things. At a, he's a grad student now and working on other projects, but he's still working on Odyssey now related projects because once you're in, it's hard to get out. It's addictive. So at any rate, some of the things we've done, we're basically the overall goal is to try to understand. When I, st when I started Odyssey now, there was so little public information available about the Odyssey. Almost nothing. You couldn't, for instance, view almost anywhere gameplay you know, videos of gameplay. Like people had no idea what it was like to play an Odyssey game. I think when I started, there were a couple of old joke reviews or somebody who had obtained an Odyssey and then just filmed it and didn't really learn how to play it, didn't know what they were doing, in some cases making fun of it. And so there was no way to learn, you know, well, well what's it like to play? Of course, the, the, game, the system's rare, hard to get working and expensive right now. So not many people can play one in person there are emulators out there, but I should say the emulators don't really emulate the experience because it's an analog system and it behaves in a way that you can't, simply cannot emulate digitally. And so I wanted to, first of all, help the public understand better what this thing was all about. In some ways, we knew the history of it. There were video game historians who kind of talked a bit about it, the basic history, but that's very different from understanding what it was all about. What is it like to play? How does it really work? What are the experiential dimensions of it? So one of the things we did is we collected all the games and digitized all the components, analog from cards and physical objects that we modeled to overlays, et cetera, and made all of that available. Now all that's available on our site, odysseynow.org. So for, for one thing, people can access all the materials, including the rare games that you'd never see in person. But secondly, we spent a lot of time getting people together, having them learn the games, shooting Let's Play videos of every single game for the Odyssey. All of those are on our YouTube channel. All of those are on linked on the, on the Odyssey Now site. And so that made a big difference. I can't tell you how many people contact me and thanked us for just those videos alone to be able to see what each game was like. What is it like to play these games? People now have a much better understanding. At least there are resources now available online for people who want to just learn what the Odyssey was about. So that's something we did early on, but we've also wanted to push and understand, we wanted to understand this platform better and we wanted to explore its potentials. And as I said, it has very unique, and as Levi talked a lot about here, we've, it has very unique electronics. It's basically a system that has a lot of digital logic without a processor, and that's very unique. It, it's basically taking using analog electronics to create digital logic and then it's also adding to that things like Levi talked about, about the ball bouncing and changing directions and being in certain states, going invisible, disappearing. All that stuff is digital logic. There's different states that are either on or off, but 
there's no processor to, to convert that to code. And so instead, it's a lot of discrete circuitry that has to actually implement things like, I mentioned flip-flops, which are basically a digital logic gate, but it has to do it through analog circuitry. So it's combining very unique capabilities and it's programmable, unlike later games and earlier ones. And it's combined with all these analog tabletop gaming modalities. All of those make it so unique that we, I wanted to explore, well, did they do everything that could be done with that platform, right? Or did they create something that's really amazing and maybe they didn't push it far enough or maybe commercially didn't get an opportunity to for enough time for it to really blossom, right? As a platform, does it have legs is, is one way to put it, right? And so we designed a lot of games. And in fact, at this point, we've created almost as many games <laughs> for the Odyssey as were originally created and released for the Odyssey during its, during its lifespan. And so we've also combined with that, created a lot of hardware. So we've created new controllers. We've created new game cards that add, add new inputs and outputs. We have reverse engineered the Odyssey so that we can replace, create new daughter, car, daughter cards for it, sometimes with new capabilities. And also we've just pushed gameplay a lot further. And so a lot of people have been involved with this project probably 50 or 60 people through my many students in classes that have been involved in game design, too many people just extracurricularly that come to the lab and, and work on this stuff. And they've all kind of left a mark. And so we have this library of games that I'm really proud of that has pushed, again, that combined tabletop screen modality in many, many different ways to sort of explore what they created back then and where it could have gone had that platform had a longer evolutionary line before it got killed by market forces, like I said, in terms of simple, like really simplistic video games, killed it off. But what could have happened if it had survived longer? And we've really pushed that on both the electronic side, programming side. We have software that interfaces a computer with that to try to teach with the actual console, analog console, to try to teach the computer how to play these, these analog games. It's been a really fascinating project. That's our HAL project. Levi has done some amazing reverse engineering that you can talk about if you want of how the entire Odyssey works, basically worked out in the, all of the circuitry and how, and how it functions. And we've created new types of controllers and things that push the Odyssey in, in different ways. Yeah, no, I mean, what interested me, like, first off was the fact that you guys, because I'm familiar with homebrew scenes, like, you know, 2600 and the NES were my childhood. And so, you know, I've seen like what people do like with, with homebrew scenes, but you guys are actually producing hardware. Also, in addition to creating new games for the system. And so I, I find that very interesting because you don't see that very common with, with old systems. So Levi, yeah, if you could just talk around it a little bit, because I, I wanted to ask you basically, what have you enjoyed about working as part of this project and anything that you want to talk about as far as like your work specifically, as far as like reverse engineering a console that I know that there's a test manual that still exists for it. Cause I've seen it, but I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of information you had to just kind of get into the components and figure out for yourself. Yeah. I, working on the Odyssey is really fun. I, I came from a background where I was really interested in the old consoles. I used to print out the schematics of the 2600 and like put them on my wall and things like that. But working I on approve. those is, is a yeah, it's a <laughs> lot different than the than the Odyssey because so the the 2600 had a processor, the processor had a data sheet, and you could figure out how to program it if you did just a little bit of guesswork or, or knew what you were doing. But the Odyssey it comes with comes with a service manual with which is not made for 
the schematic that's in there, there's a schematic for the whole thing, mm -hmm. but it's not made for somebody who's a designer who's making for a game. It's It looks like a pile of spaghetti. Just all the wires are going everywhere. They're mm -hmm. not laid out in any sort of logical format. Most of them are not labeled, just pin numbers, pin one, pin two, pin three. So you don't even know what they do. And the game specifications that they give you are just jumpers things, pin one to three, pin four to five. So we wanted to recreate this and understand how it worked. And we had this map of what, where, where everything was connected to, but we didn't know what any of it meant. And so that was, that was super fun coming in as a student to get into it and have all these hypotheses about which wire did what and what its role was. And by trial and error, we, we figured out what they actually did. And I remember the, the one day I was working with another student there in the lab and we, we said, we really sat down. We're like, we're doing, we're going to label everything in this circuit today. And we did, we did everything. We gave everything a name and we've stuck with that, that naming convention since, because it's been very, very helpful. But like Zach said, there's multiple daughter cards within the Odyssey that do specific functions like draw spots, player spots, wall spots, ball spots. There's specific circuits that do timing functions to generate when the screen's vertical sync period is to draw at 60 frames per second. So we've, we've reversed each engineered each one of those things individually, which we, that was one of the first things we did. And we also have done the motherboard to some extent that remains in flux. We're still working on that. We had a prototype that did most of, almost all the functionality and we're working on V2 of that prototype still. But yeah, the, the thing that's really cool about it is that there wasn't a clear instruction manual. It's like reverse engineering a processor or something with only an idea of how it works, but no clear instructions, which I, I just love. It gets very addicting, like Zach said. Very cool. Yeah. In my day job, I'm an engineer. I'm an electrical engineer. So I can totally see why this would be a really exciting project to get into for that aspect. I can give a couple of examples of some of the concrete designs that have come out of that reverse engineering process. For one thing, we were able to create all kinds of new game cards. And, you know, and, and many of these are utilizing capabilities of the Odyssey that we've discovered through that reverse engineering that were never implemented in games, right? Because they created a platform that's programmable in different ways, but that doesn't mean that the designers of the games utilized all of these functions, right? And so for instance, we've created a game card that changes what gets eliminated on contact. And we've created cards that add weird inertia to different elements. And originally these were tied to very specific functions in a given game card. And we found that we can reprogram them in interesting ways and create really interesting effects. We created a one game card that actually enables you to turn the wall into like a laser cannon so that it actually fires intermittently and can shoot a ball uh, out of the sky. And, you know, that is radically different than any of the, than anyone conceived, than the engineers had conceived of when they created this. But it's possible using the original circuitry combined with an, ex, you know, an external piece uh, that we had that we plug into the card as well. We've created a card, very, a super simple one that has had huge gameplay uh, implications where if the two players collide, make contact on the screen, they both get wiped out. That's such a simple one. That was one of the simplest ones, but I don't think anyone suspected that was possible until we reverse engineered the circuitry and said, oh, well, actually, we can change this crowbar circuit and you know we can connect this to different things. We can just program it differently. That's not changing the circuitry. That's just creating a different game card with different programming that enables those kinds of effects. And that, that was, that's been really exciting. And the other thing we did that was get back to that volleyball game is that we created a, a controller. We said, well, if, if there are so many different controls on these Odyssey controllers, too many for human players to fully control them all when a game <laughs> requires them to, 
I should say most games don't, but some games like volleyball do. Well, what if we actually made them multiple controllers? What if we multiplied the number of players? Mm. And so we created an English splitter system that you plug into the Odyssey, and then you plug your controller into our device, and then you plug, we created new controllers, additional controllers that you also plug into this device. And again, this is not modifying any circuitry. It's just, we basically are multiplying the controllers. And so now there's four controllers if you use this device, right? And with the four controllers, some players control the position of players on screen and the other players control the ball. And all of a sudden, not only does this make volleyball a crazy, really fun four-player game, right? Two players per team. We call it team volleyball. Suddenly the game becomes really fast-paced and crazy and playable because now you basically take these functions that were impossible for one player to do and divide them among two different teammates, right? Well, that was interesting, but then we were able to take that hardware and generate entirely new games, like develop entirely new games around that capability that that allows, you know, far more sophisticated four-player play. And then, of course, you can combine that with other stuff, too, and we have games that can handle six players, right, because we have other inputs through the, through the accessory port, which was meant for the light rifle, but we've created other peripherals that can plug into that light rifle port instead of a light rifle that can control when things disappear and appear and get killed, etc. So all of that has enabled us to expand the platform, but really we're just playing with the core platform as designed back in 1968 to 72. Yeah, I think I should point out, because even though we keep saying programmed, there's no CPU in this device. And so really what it is, is it's just making connections between points on the motherboard or one of the daughter, you know, it's just making connections. And that's why it was switches originally on the brown box. But these cards each have just like pathways that just connect. And so you're programming the device in the sense that you are reconfiguring it to, to do different operations, but it's not programming like most people would think of with loading a code into a CPU. That's right. It's not digital code, but it is programming like analog computers were programmed. So at the time that this was developed in the 60s, analog computers were many or most computers were analog computers. And so they weren't programmed with code like we think of today as you, you're entering, you know, using a programming language to feed code into a processor. But they were programmed and they were programmed exactly in that way by interconnecting different subcircuits. You could program these computers with either a patch board. Quite frequently, that was the usual interface. You'd have a patch board and you would plug components and, and wire you know, and connectors into that. And you'd create a, a computer program. It could be quite sophisticated. And that's basically how people did everything from engineering, from nuclear physics to you know, engineering bridges, et cetera, as they, use, they would program computers to solve these complex equations in that way. So you're right. You're at, it's a really good point that when we say program, we don't mean program in alphanumeric language, but we do mean program in a more historic sense of analog computer programming. And that's basically the system that Ralph Bayer and his team used in order to make the Odyssey programmable. It's very simple compared to a full analog computer. His bank of switches, you know, there's, I think there are only, there's, I think 12, somewhere between 12 and 18 switches. I can't remember. So that's a fairly small number based on the number of connections that are possible. And it turns out in the Odyssey that there are 44 pins on a game card. And so, I mean, this was true of the brown box too, is like he, Ralph Baer only chose to expose a certain number of programming functions to the user, right? And it's the same with the Odyssey where they only created 12 cards, only 11, which were ever commercially released. 
But the number of possible programming interconnections inside the Odyssey is much greater than that. And so that's one of the reasons that they provisioned for this like blue sky, like not all of those pins are going to even be usable. But the fact that they just connected them knowing that in the future, right, that they could find new ways of creating games for this that they couldn't necessarily, that it's clear that they couldn't necessarily anticipate and didn't expect to anticipate them all when they finalized the circuit board, right? Because 44 pins is just way more than you need to do the things that they had already thought of. They uh, were provisioning for new possibilities. But because the console only existed, or I should say only people only created games for another over a little over a year, even though the console was on the market for another three years, it was finally discontinued in 75. But Magnavox stopped creating games for it at the end of 73, 1973. So really, they didn't put more effort into game design as probably they should have, because by the end of 73, the games they were creating were really spectacular. And of course, we now know, and that's one of the reasons we, we did this part of the Odyssey Now project, we now know that the system had way more capabilities that had not yet been exploited by game designers and that we've been able to utilize since then as a way of exploring what the system could do. So many of those 44 pins that were never used in the original cards, we've been able to now use in different in different ways to program it to do different things that it never did in 72, but the capability was there. Yeah, I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole because I know we're going a little bit long, but there's also the provision of adding active circuitry into those cards as well, which is one of the things Ralph Baer proposed. But Magnavox didn't want to spend the money. You know, it would be more costly to have components on those cards, but then that would also increase the capability of the system by you know doing more than just making and breaking connections. Then you're also adding additional circuitry that would have other functions. I actually just recently examined those physical cards that Ralph Baer created. He just created those on his own and proposed them to the Magnavox team. And this was after the Odyssey had been released, but before it had been discontinued. And Baer was really interested. He was really excited about the idea of expanding the capabilities of that platform with further peripherals. And those active cards were really something. like They were actually pretty sophisticated. He packed a lot of circuitry onto those things. And they have this great little like kind of cardboard housing that he he created and glued glued onto them. And so yeah, I, I mean really we've pushed further in that direction that that he already, you know, was very, very excited about. But that the Magnavox team, I should say, was not. I mean they they created so much stuff for the Odyssey between 72 and 73. Really amazing platform. I mean, like I said. But then they lost interest. And so they really didn't take Bear's suggestion to create more active components and peripherals for the system that Bayer knew could increase its capabilities further and exploit further what it could already do. They just didn't want to do it. They just didn't want to plow any more money into it at that point. They were already thinking, based on the success of Pong, how they could create a stripped down version. So they were both simultaneously creating this super odyssey, this four-player super version that never got released. And at the same time, they had another team that was creating a stripped-down version that got rid of all of the extra stuff and could only play three games. And they did release that as a simple home console. Very simple, right? To capitalize on Pong, ironically, given that they had <laughs> had something so much, so much more sophisticated originally, but Pong was the commercial hit. So they created something that looked more like Pong by stripping things out rather than adding things. Well, it's funny because one of the things Bear wanted to add was sound. Because he knew that that was one of the things people liked about Pong is that you got the sound effect from it bouncing back and forth. And it's like, that would have helped the Odyssey 
hold more of that interest, but you know, it, it, it just didn't happen. Absolutely. And that is a real detriment as all the amazing things they engineered into the Odyssey it, it is a real missed opportunity that, they, that that sound wasn't part of the original system. That really is too bad. Yeah. Damien, I did want to also ask you what you've enjoyed about working on the Odyssey Now project. Yeah, so like uh, like Zach and Levi said, the project I'm mainly working on is TVG2. It's more of a precursor to Odyssey. And uh, compared to the Odyssey, it has even less documentation. All we had is, uh, is three hand-drawn schematics and some pictures Levi and Zach took at the actual site. And we later discovered there are many accuracies on the schematic also. So it's more like we are putting ourselves into the mindsets of the engineers in the 60s, which is a very interesting thing to do because we are taught in school to buy off-the-shelf components um, if you want to generate video signal by a video chip and get a gate, but a gate chip. But the 60 design, they're all using discrete components. So both learning on the job and yeah, just very interesting experience overall. Now, I know that there's a lot of materials at the Smithsonian. Is there a TVG2 at the Smithsonian? There is, and, and Levi and I have inspected that, but I have to say that getting access to it was exceptionally difficult. It's like mm. a, it's like literally a national treasure. There isn't a, there was only, there only ever was one mm-hmm. and it got beat up because it got dragged into lawsuit, like used as exhibits in lawsuits in later years. And it was never designed to do anything but function more than a couple of weeks anyway. And Levi and I discovered actually that the solder joints are bad, that it wasn't even assembled in a way that was meant to have any longevity. But yeah, so we have examined it. We had to go, you have to go, we have to go through like an underground vault. You know, we go through multiple layers of security to get to this thing and have to follow very complex protocols with literally every touch, everything we touch and every move we make, we had to submit as a proposal and as a protocol ahead of time. And yeah, and we were locked in down there and, you know, but it does exist as an artifact in real life in, in a kind of maximum security. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, no, because, yeah, I knew Ralph Baer took all these extensive notes about everything. And so I just assumed that, like, all the information was there and, and ready to go. So that's it's interesting that, that the schematics that have been held are not <laughs> are not necessarily accurate. No, yeah, as Damien said, our hypothesis is that the schematics were drawn up to create the plan for the Odyssey. I mean, the uh, TVG2. And then when they actually created it, it didn't work. And so uh, like in any prototype, they kept monkeying with it, right? Until they got something that worked. But then they never went back and changed or, or documented what those changes were. They never went back to the schematic and said, oh, this is how it actually ended up. Instead, what we have is more of a speculative schematic, right? That is how was their blueprint for how they were going to go about it, but it's not necessarily how it ended up. And uh, it certainly doesn't work as originally documented, but we've learned a lot from doing that. And uh, Damien's made a lot of progress actually on piecing this together piece by piece, sub-circuit by sub-circuit. It's interesting, even the signal to the TV, which is so trivial today, like Damien mentioned, you just, you drop in a chip and that does that part of the work. Well, there was no chip back then. And even if there was, there, they did have something that did some of that work and it was deemed by their bosses too expensive to use. But even that doesn't really do it. To create a TV signal on this device, they actually use, I think it's something like four different sub-circuits, right, Damien, that where they're, each piece of the signal is generated separately and then they're all combined. Um, and all this has to be done through analog circuitry. So nothing meets any kind of spec 
modern televisions that are have digital even and i say modern these are crt tvs from like you know maybe the 90s but even those have digital chips to regulate the signal right and they won't even accept a signal from this thing so it, it's really rough and dirty the kind of engineering they were doing trying to even get something like a signal on the screen that's why it wasn't trivial the tvg1 that first prototype it was a huge moment of celebration for that team when in 1966 when they actually got it to generate a signal on the screen that could be moved around that was actually a feat of engineering it seems so trivial today but it was a big breakthrough and then tvg2 tried to slap so much onto that you know all the color and timing and randomization and all that stuff that even getting a, a stable signal um, is really challenging. Um, but, you know, we've only scratched the surface in this discussion, but Levi and I, as we examine this thing and Damien's work, and, a, and a, especially with another grad student, Matt Building, who's working on that but couldn't join us today, we've learned an incredible amount about, it, like Damien said, the mindset of these engineers in the 60s as they were creating this new thing. Wow. There's a lot going on there, uh, and I, I think it's very cool because you called it, I think, archaeology before. That's kind of like what it is because you're uncovering the past like layer by layer, like an archaeologist going to a dig site. And I, I think that that's a, very fascinating that we can talk about something that's only 50 years old as archaeology in that way. But because of the engineering involved in it, it is like uncovering the past. Yeah, we call it media, media archaeology, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's layer after layer and digging down and trying to combine clues like archaeologists or paleontologists, right? Like they find little pieces of things and you have information of different types and you try to combine it together to understand something. Um, in this case, we have blueprints, but we also have logs and journals and some later interviews, but none of that's complete. And we have, a, you know, we have the artifact, the broken down later artifact. None of that gives a complete picture. And in some way, that's why the Odyssey Now Project is trying to weave all these things together from different disciplines, different modes of inquiry, different methods of trying to rebuild or understand something. And when you combine it all, we hope to get a fuller picture, and we, we have had a fuller picture, of what it meant, what it looked like at the birth of video games. Yeah. So what do you want to do with Odyssey now that you haven't done yet? Like, where, where is the future of this project? Well, like, like Levi said, we're, always, we're, we're still working on all kinds of things. I think we're finally slowing down on the game development. I feel like we've kind of achieved and pushed the platform in many different ways there. But we're still really interested in alternate forms of input and output. Some of the earlier prototypes had controllers and methods of gameplay that the Odyssey didn't. And so we're trying to recreate those um, and get them, make them work with the Odyssey so that we can play some of those earlier games. Like I mentioned, the pumping games, and there's others as well. So we're working on that. Levi's working still on essentially rebuilding from scratch the entire Odyssey platform. And then we're doing that so that we can push it in new directions, right? We can say, what does it look like if we actually did add four player spots and four players like they were working on at Magnavox, but never finished, right? We would like to explore essentially like the futures of the Odyssey that it had, even if those futures weren't fully realized, again, because of market conditions, we'd like to explore what those futures were, right? What they could have been. What would a, a more full-featured Odyssey that they wanted to do and worked on, what would that look like? And what would that enable in terms of new forms of gameplay? So those are some of the things. I, Levi, would, do you want to say anything about the work on that? 
Yeah, uh, as Zach said, we really want to recreate the whole console, the whole original Mechavox Odyssey, and add those features. Uh, but we also want to make something that's reproducible. So we're going to document the hardware and make it so that other people can make it. Because for me, it was, you know, I got involved in this project and I, I knew that as a, even in high school, I used to tinker with electronics and stuff. And I know I would have wanted to build this back then if somebody had put the put the designs online and I would have. So that's another goal that we have is to actually make it so other people can make it and we'll live on. Yeah, we've, we've actually been very successful at recreating the circuitry, but in a kind of test bench form. And so like, like Levi said, a, a goal for the future is to say, okay, we've done the exploration. How can we make this a kit or make this more accessible to other people to explore? That's the big, big goal of the Odyssey Now project is how do we, in many different ways, make the Odyssey accessible as a platform from a gameplay standpoint, from an actual engineering standpoint, from an historical standpoint, from a social context standpoint? How can we make all of that accessible to people now and in the future? So when you talk about recreating it, are you recreating it completely with all the original components or are you doing anything like well, updating it so it can actually connect to a modern TV easily or, or something along those lines. All of the above. Yeah. So we relay out all the circuit boards. We replace the older components with modern components. We don't really change the circuitry. The circuitry is almost the same, except for a few types of components that we can't either source or, well, for instance, if you want to hook it up to a modern TV, you need an entirely different set of, of components anyway. But yeah, we try to keep it as true as possible, but it is a rebuild from scratch. Well, yeah, I mean, that was my main curiosity though, was around connecting to modern TV. Cause I was like, you could make it the way it was, but just with an interface that connects to modern TVs rather than the coax connection. We should say that we've largely abandoned the coax connection, but we're not making a digital output like HDMI or something. So what, again, we're choosing a kind of middle ground where we want a composite NTSC signal. So it's an analog signal. But it's more modern than an RF <laughs> <laughs> than an RF signal. Well, it even had like a potentiometer on it that you had to turn to get like the screen to like sync properly with the TV, if I recall correctly. Oh, oh that's still there. Oh, that's still okay. there. <laughs> <laughs> and that's necessary because even to generate that analog TV signal, it's not using a digital tuning circuit. So to align the right frequencies, even on an analog TV from like the you know 80s, 90s, etc., it's using digital circuitry to do that. And any device that generates even, you know, like a 80s game console is it's outputting an analog signal, but it's using digital circuitry to tune the frequencies of that signal to a spec. The Odyssey doesn't, doesn't do that. We'd have to change the whole thing in order to make it use digital stuff there. So instead, we're trying to use the original, you know, pulse generating circuitry, et cetera. But then we do feed that in to a chip that stabilizes it as an output. So. If people want to learn more about the Odyssey Now project, where, where should they go? OdysseyNow.org. All right. Very easy. <laughs> and I'll put a link in the show notes to it also. So people can find out what's going on with it now. And you can look at all those. You know, I was just there on the website before we started recording. There's all the videos for all the original games you can look at. And there's um, some articles and references, various things. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to check out there. And I'd say if, you, and if you're really hardcore, like the young Levi that he talked about, right, and you want to actually be involved or say, first of all, you can email us. There's contact info on the site. Email us if you, if you have information, historical information about the Odyssey or reminiscences or information of any kind or want to collaborate with us. And we're welcome to all of that. So, you know, 
feel free to contact us if you want to take it even further than just learning about it. And if you want to go even further yet, and you are a high school student, then just come to Pitt for college and literally join the project. So there you go. Three different tiers of uh, possible (laughs) (laughs) ways to follow up. All right. Well, that's awesome. And Dr. Horton, thank you so much for coming on the show and Levi and Damien also. I know we went quite a bit longer than I originally said, but this is all really great discussion. My, My pleasure. Tons of fun. So again, thank you all for being on the show today and keep in touch if there are any new developments or anything. And I can always mention them on the show. Will do. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you. You have been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2023. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42Cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. And now, the outtakes. It's partly the this misconception that the Odyssey is more primitive than later games and current games that leads people to misunderstand it and not really be able to understand what it was like experientially. Part of the reason I wanted to start our Odyssey now is that I wanted to delve into that history and the capabilities and and what was innovative about it, not just how it kickstarted later game developments, but how it actually developed things that were so advanced that they never took root. Well, the other argument I would make is, I mean, one of the things like even going back to the games I remember from the 2600 and even looking at like the kind of games that are viral on phones and stuff, simpler doesn't necessarily mean it's a worse game. There are certain games for the Atari 2600 that I say are still addictive and fun, like Warlords, if you've ever played that, is a very addictive, fun game. Oh man, that's one of the one of the best video games ever. Oh sure. right, yeah, no, I, I have people play it when they come over my house and they're surprised that this primitive Atari 2600 game is so fun. And I'm like, yeah, isn't it? You know, like it's this really addictive game and you get really competitive about it. You know, it's just like, it's fun. Well, I mean, you know, I've had in many of my I mean, many, many students I have. And also we've done, we did an an Odyssey Expo event where we, several years ago, where we opened up eight consoles, all playing, setting different games in a big hall, made a big public event and hundreds of people came and could play the Odyssey for the first time, like a big public event. I love watching people play this stuff for the first time. At first they go, whoa, wait a minute. It's so simple or so primitive. But then when they start playing the game, so it's a difference between seeing it and then actually trying to learn how to play a game. And then they go, whoa, this is just unlike any. It's not. It's just totally different from video games today. And it's, it's kind of wrong to think of it as more primitive. It's just a totally different concept of what gaming could be. And like I said, people play Haunted House and it blows their minds. You know, you're not going to get anything like that in a that. game today. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love that. Even table tennis, so, so simple. It's super fun today. I have actually played table tennis just because I went to, there's a gaming con in Milwaukee where I live, uh, like a, a retro gaming con in Milwaukee. It's one of the few cons we get in Milwaukee because almost everything goes to Chicago. And they have set up various consoles. And so they did have an odyssey with table tennis 
set up. It's behind, like only the controller is out where you can touch it. Like it's all behind glass and everything because they don't oh, want anyone okay. touching, you know. But <laughs> I did I did actually play table tennis. That's the one Odyssey game I've played just because they had it set up where you could play it at this con. Now, I mean, obviously back then when people hadn't done anything like that, it would be really mind-blowing. But it's still super fun today. I don't think it's lost its its fun appeal. Oh, no, no, no. But it's like, but when you talked about how needing like the three hands to be able to work like yeah. the controller, like the English control, it's just like, yeah. man, this is, <laughs> that's rough. Volleyball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> it's really rough. But that game, if people get good enough to be able to play it, is super, is super fun. I mean, more fun than table tennis, but it's just big learning curve. It's really hard, really hard to play. But I love seeing people learn how to play volleyball. And Invasion, like I said, is, you know, I've had plenty of students who have then gone out to try to source an Odyssey just because they love that game so much. I really think it's one of the most innovative games ever made. I'm very fascinated about there have been some homebrews also made by people other than yourself that are kind of interesting to me that I want to try out. So like, it's one of those things where it's just like, yeah, I'm like, there's a lot to mine with the Odyssey. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm really glad you guys are doing the work because ever since I read about it, I was like, I'm fascinated by these peripherals that never existed also and stuff. And you guys are actually developing them. So that's really yes. cool. Yes, our hope is really, there's a few where it's still, you know, that's definitely still on the roadmap where we've got stuff that work in prototype form. It's a lot harder to make these available to people. As you know, like we do, we try to do these releases for collectors every once in a while, but even those are like, really challenging. It's hard to even make 15 copies of such complex things sometimes to come up with a assembly method that works for them. And, you know, these controllers are really finicky. Creating controllers for an analog platform is not easy. You have to, you have to create ways to calibrate them, et cetera, et cetera. But that will happen because that's such a high priority for me. Golf ball controller, insanely difficult to get working, but that was a classic bear controller. Like he loved that and he kept it and kept make, remaking it for every prototype, including the brown box, and, and gave it to Magnavox, really wanted Magnavox to create the golf ball controller for the Odyssey, and they didn't do it. And there's no documentation on why they didn't do it, but once we recreated it and played it with the Odyssey, we realized why. And it's, it's very complex to calibrate that controller. I'm sure that the Odyssey team tried it and thought home users are going to get really frustrated with this. Like they're not going to be able to figure out how to get it calibrated right. So I think that's the, honestly the reason because it's really fun. The golf game is really, really fun to play. You play it with a real golf putter. That's how Bear designed it. Play with this golf ball controller. We've had a blast. Like it's so much fun. Clearly it would have been a hit game, but there's just no, the controller is too complex and finicky to get working. So anyway, I hope we can release some co- a few copies of that, but it's so hard to make one that, I don't know, we'll see. We're trying. And the pump controllers, for sure. We've also had a really great time with the pump controllers, and d- that definitely, eventually, someday, we'll release, a- release some of those. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.